Many of the programmers listening to this podcast are working at a big company, and they would prefer to be running their own small software business. Patrick McKenzie has been writing about this topic of going from being an enterprise software developer to being a person running his own software business. He's been writing about this topic for several years on his blog, calzumius.com. Almost a decade ago, Patrick was working as an enterprise developer at a large company in Japan doing J2EE, enterprise software development, and over time, his side projects started making enough money to justify leaving his work to go full-time on his side projects. Now, starting a small, successful software business is not totally about luck. It's not about taking huge risks or having the muse that you know gives you all your software insights deliver you some brilliant idea it's about studying the markets where you can build software that can deliver value and patrick talks a lot about underserved markets such as women or elementary school teachers one of his uh apps that he sold was called bingo card creator was an app for elementary school teachers and we talk about this topic of how you build a software business a small lifestyle software business that you could potentially sell we also talk about stripe where he now works today he sold his small businesses to go back to the work of being an enterprise developer, if you want to call Stripe an enterprise. He works on Stripe Atlas, and Stripe Atlas is a really exciting project that we get into. So his story of transitioning back to a big company is fascinating as well, and I hope you enjoy this episode too. Patrick McKenzie blogs about building software businesses at calzumius.com, and today he works at Stripe. Patrick, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff. You have been building your own small software companies for several years, and this is an interesting area to me because most of the people that I talk to on this show either... They either work at big companies or they're an early employee at a startup that they hope will become a big company someday. I guess that's where you are at Stripe at this point, but for many years you were working on these small software businesses. What was appealing to you about building small software businesses? Uh, there were a couple of things. I think uh, my the thing that was attracting me most to the, uh, to the business life kind of changed a little bit over time. Um, when I started back in 2006, I had a job at a, a a very big Japanese company, which was not very creatively fulfilling. And uh, the main reason that I started a business on the side was just to have an outlet for um, uh, both giving myself the opportunity for professional growth, because I felt I wasn't progressing much as an engineer, uh, and also, um, frankly, the opportunity to have some decision-making authority. Uh, I was a very small cog in a very big machine and uh, working very hard at the very big machine, but uh, not allowed to really make any decision of consequence at it. And one of the nice things about uh, being the boss is that you get to make all the decisions of consequences. That's also one of the less than nice things. But um, then after doing it for a few years, uh, the uh, life at the day job is getting progressively worse and worse. Life at the uh, nights and weekends was getting progressively better and better. Uh, the money got to the point where it was a uh, uh, not quite a no-brainer that I'd be able to do it full-time, but it looked uh, looked doable and within my risk tolerances. So then I jumped ship in 2010 and uh, did uh, small businesses as basically my uh, job for uh, the next five-ish or so years. Um, 
the thing that was biggest uh, to me in that time was uh, uh, just autonomy. I had spent a couple of years of my life uh, just fully wedded to the job, and uh, that you know uh, that's part of the social expectation for professional work in Japan. But yeah, and, it was, and uh, you 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 describe I think this I think you describe this as soul crushing J two E E big freaking enterprise web applications work. Is that that accurate? is substantially accurate? Oh my goodness. Um, so my first application that I sold was actually a uh, a Java Swing app, and uh, then I replaced it with a Ruby on Rails uh, SaaS app after a few years, and haven't touched Java since then. And honestly, um, I start getting like PTSD if I even see Java code. Uh, I was... feel I feel the same way. It it's it uh it lifts a burden off of your soul when you stop working with Java. Well, I mean, look, Java has its place. Uh, you know, maybe, and I think like current manifestations where people are using Java on the back end are probably somewhat less soul crushing. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's better. I hear, but um, it's something I have very little interest in going back into myself. And I have, you know, nothing against people who use Java as their number one language. Uh, I know the ecosystem has gotten a lot better, particularly as it kind of like moves a little further from just being a. Uh, enterprisey and uh, starts to imbibe ideas from other stacks. But um, all the best to you. Uh, I've kind of settled on Ruby for my primary language uh, for the time being, just because I find that I really enjoy working in it. I'm fairly productive in it, and uh, I picked up Go last year. Just uh, well over the last two years, I guess. So, uh, so just to have another one. So there is this this feeling that people have when they first start programming, where things are really exciting. It's really fun to build build that first, uh, you know, text based game or Hello World or whatever it is, and and then over time, the programmer's expectation for how much fun you have day to day, it oftentimes drops. I've noticed this in a lot of people I know. I mean, I don't know anybody who says their first programming experience was boring, but I know plenty of people who describe their day to day job as something boring and i always wonder like why what's keeping these people from finding a way to reinvigorate their you know their childish programmer uh in the form of you know some kind of side project or something what do you think it is that keeps people from doing that more regularly i think the if if you just like dig into what creates joy the the parts of programming that create the joy the exploring a new unknown territory and achieving mastery over it, building something that's never existed in the world before, are not the parts that companies pay for. Uh, and so if you just allow your career to be shaped by external forces, you're going to find yourself quickly sidetracked into whatever it is that the company will pay for, which will often be an unjoyful experience. Um, the majority of programmers, probably 90% or so, are building uh, you know, line of business, business apps, and you'll be translating requirements into the required uh, Java or Ruby or whatever it is to to paint the right fields on the screen. And uh, that just isn't all that fun of an experience. Um, as to what stops people from doing something in their in their off hours, um, well, one thing is that many people prefer their off hours to not resemble their on hours, and uh, that is an entirely reasonable thing, and I can respect it. Uh, you know, I'm married and have a daughter as well. Um, I think some folks just uh, were kind of socialized in our educational backgrounds to have things put in front of us 
Uh, you know, you go to school, people tell you what to do. You go to college, people tell you what to do. You go to the workplace, people tell you what to do. And we don't really have a script for um, you know, determining what we want to do outside the confines of that, particularly when isn't when isn't packaged as a product you can buy and an identity you can consume. There's no multimedia marketing campaign for, uh, you know, this December, build something awesome. <laughs> so, Which is what you're working on at Stripe. Uh, hopefully. Um, <laughs> so context for that, I'm working on something called Atlas at Stripe. It is a way for entrepreneurs worldwide to incorporate uh, uh, real software businesses and get them a bank account and hopefully in the, the next few months, a few other things to uh, get folks past the kind of rigmarole of starting a company and into the uh, fun bits of actually building something that's awesome and shipping it to customers worldwide. Which is brilliant, by the way. And I I saw that pro- that uh, that program and I signed up for it. Uh, I signed up for it recently, actually. No, so I didn't sign up for it immediately when I saw it. But, um, I mean, I started this podcast business and I, you know, it's not even a software business and I had to do all this rigmarole with all this friction for incorporation and creating a business bank account and all this stuff is just like this should definitely be easier and i'm really glad that stripe is working on that yep it's something that many many entrepreneurs go through and i think there was a uh, just an expectation in the world that well there's a certain amount of essential suckitude in this and um, one of the things that drew me to working at stripe was that the company has historically had a um uh, an intolerance for suckitude. Like the, uh, the fundamental reason the company works is because we have the, uh, so Stripe for any of you folks who haven't heard is a payment processor. You can go to www.stripe.com and start charging credit cards um, within minutes. And uh, that requires skipping a step that everybody in the industry thought was absolutely mandatory, which was a, uh, uh, before you give someone the API keys to let them charge credit cards, you need to do an, an underwriting process to make sure that they're not a bad actor. And uh, we um, we went to substantial work to figure out a way to do that without having to uh, to delay folks on the front end of that process, which lets you get directly into things. And similarly for Atlas, there's you know a metaphorical 400-page book of regulations for what you need to do to uh, get somebody a C corporation spun up and get them a bank account issued, and um, and a complex web of interrelationships that need to happen to make that happen. And we were like. Hmm. Well, okay. 400 pages is less than infinite. All we have to do is implement everything. And uh, then the, uh, the, uh, my colleagues, um, I was not involved at the time, but they just, you know, went through and ground the tech out. And uh, now that it actually mostly works. Definitely. Yeah. So I want to talk about that, uh, more a little, a little later, but I want to spend some time talking about the businesses that you've built because you built these a couple of businesses uh, as a solo developer and you know you've written about this at length um, and you gave a great talk about building software for underserved markets and I think this is actually uh, a key to where a lot of people can potentially find success if they're looking for a software application that they can build look for an underserved market look for a market that other engineers might not necessarily have insight into um, we just did a show with Cortland Allen from a website called Indie Hackers, and his his site is all about 
long tail businesses that make a lot of money and it's 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 staggering how much money some of these businesses make like you you know um domain back orders for hackers whatever that means is a company that makes like a hundred grand a month and um so you you know one of your long tail businesses is bingo card creator um and maybe you can talk about that but does an underserved business tend to be a long tail business or are there underserved markets that are not necessarily long tail i guess that would require digging into what long tailed means when the uh, ruby hits the road the uh, if you kind of like think of the cycle graph of people who go and get a cs degree and then start banging on uh, computers in their spare time and making businesses around it they tend to have a concentrated set of life experiences and hobbies etc so the things that tend to get very well served are like software to manage dungeons and dragons campaigns um and there's a business to be made there don't get me wrong but there's uh there's like thousands of people who are trying to make that business and um, and if you think of that set of life experiences is an elementary school teacher is fairly underrepresented and therefore uh, software to make elementary school teachers lives better is rather underrepresented um, which does not mean i would recommend going out to build elementary school teacher facing software as your first port of call i did that for a number of years and uh, we could sidetrack the conversation for a while on why that might not be the ideal market to go after but um, uh, there are a lot of more or less niche needs in industry that are you know, there exists no software to uh, uh, to fill the need at the moment, or the software that uh, does exist does not work for a sufficiently large percentage of the industry that you can, you know, with a fairly pedestrian one-man marketing and sales approach, you can go out and grab a bit of it. And you don't have to grab a huge amount of an industry to, uh, to get to the point where, the, you know, the numbers start making sense. Um, I just sold a company called Appointment Reminder, which did appointment reminding phone calls, SMS messages, and emails to the clients of professional services businesses. And um, if you think the addressable market for that is uh, every business in the United States that takes appointments, which is minimally several hundred thousand businesses, probably several million, and uh, the you know at the numbers I was charging per month, fifty to a couple hundred bucks per month, um, you don't need to have more than you know, a few hundred businesses for using you to have a, a pretty meaningful number. Um, you can absolutely, you know, collect a, a few hundred businesses uh, in a more dedicated fashion if you were better at marketing your sales than I was. Uh, or you can do it like I did, the the lazy way and just wait for organic SEO to build it for you and take a number of years. Can you talk about some of the challenges of building a product for customers that uh, you don't have psychographic uh, empathy with them? I mean, I, or maybe you have more empathy with an elementary school teacher than I'm aware of, or uh, more empathy with some with the type of person who wants uh, to be reminded uh, via phone call of their appointments. Um, but I don't know, maybe you could tell me tell me more about that, because I know that is, I mean, I know that factors into how well you can do sales, uh, regardless of how well you actually, uh, you know, might, might classify yourself as having executed at sales. I think the single biggest thing that is difficult is that um, uh, we kind of have a birds of a feather flock together thing going on. Uh, and this is true in all walks of life. So if you make a product for other developers, and there's a lot of small developers who do quite well for themselves with product for other developers, 
it's highly likely you already know other developers. And if you were to attempt to uh, create an active audience of people who had given you their email address with the expectation of hearing back from you in a developer-facing topic, if you wanted to be the developer who owned um, you know, MySQL backups or something, um, that would not be all that terribly difficult. But going to a place where nobody knows you and building an audience, really rather difficult. Um, I would say that I have no meaningful audience in uh, in either elementary school teaching or in you know office managers for dental practices, which makes marketing and sales much, much harder than it is when you have an audience. Um, when you have an audience, it's more of a matter of just growing the audience, getting more people to trust you, and then saying, B2W, there's this thing that you should be using. Um, you should buy it for me because you trust me. Uh, and that's uh, that is not exactly as easy as I just described it. Uh, there's a lot of art and science that goes into that too, but it's um, it's a much easier place to start the conversation from than yelling into the void from central Japan saying, "Hey, English teachers, bingo! This Friday it's on." Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of building the product, um, there is a bit of an empathy gap. You do need to. Uh, be pretty responsive to folks and to make an affirmative effort to get out into the world, uh, get out of your little, you know, code cave bubble and talk to people and say, okay, this thing that I built, um, does it solve the need that you have? Do you actually have that need? And crucially, will you pay me for it right now? Uh, this has been covered uh, by smarter folks in many, many places. It's called customer development, but uh, the, um, the reason everyone says that the failure mode is, you know, staying in the code cave and just banging something out and having no one come uh, is because that is true. Uh, that is indeed a, a ridiculously common failure mode. Um, I would go so far as to say that I wouldn't build any software that I didn't have 10 customers for. Uh, you know, take it when it's at the napkin stage, go out to people, find 10 and get soft commits on, say, an LOI, which is a letter of intent, a non-binding contract to buy something at a certain price if you ship with features XYZ. Um, and if you can't identify 10 people who are willing to give you an LOI, then that is evidence that either um, either they don't exist in the world, which is a good reason to not build the thing that you want to build, or that you can't find that market, which is a different problem, but still a problem that you need to solve before building the thing that you build because spending, you know, six weeks or six months building software will not get you any closer to being visible in the market. I think a lot of folks have the, uh, the misapprehension that, okay, they'll, they'll build the software for a few months and then put it up in Hacker News and TechCrunch will cover it and then boom, audience, uh, which is not the way that things happen. Uh, you know, even, if you successfully get Asian front page, that gets you traffic for a day. But uh, uh, to run the business, you need kind of a scalable and repeatable way to uh, continue getting folks who are interested in seeing your stuff, uh, see your stuff. And uh, that is uh, a bit of a uh, uphill battle. So, okay. We, so we talked about kind of the beginning where you left your job to start working on software and we talked about where you are now which is working on stripe and i want to fill in the blanks uh between there a little bit which is involves you working on this software by yourself for a fairly long period of time and um as i am learning uh being self-employed has a number of 
difficulties. I mean, they're total first world problems. It's they're great problems to have, but they are difficulties nonetheless. And I think anybody who is self-employed or even like remote workers have this this type of problem. Um, and you've written about this a lot. You write about the difficulties of being self-employed, uh, in at least in terms of. Uh, the infinitely flexible schedule. And uh, in my experience, this can end up kind of being like you have this like big bag of candy and it's like it's like when you work at nine, a nine to five job, you just have the weekend and that's your scarce time of flexibility. It's just like a few small pieces of candy a week and it's the candy tastes really good. But when you're self-employed, that infinite flexibility is just this big bag of candy and you can kind of eat it as much as you want and uh, it can it can really like mess with you. So, how did you handle that lack of a schedule when you were building your own software businesses? Like, what did you allocate your? How did you figure out how to allocate your time and put pressures on yourself? Yeah, um, I'll say off the top that I don't think that I was uh, uh, maximally successful at doing this, uh, and my success at doing it kind of waxed and waned over the years. The there's a couple of sub problems here. Um, it's it's hard to know when you should be working. Um, when I was starting self-employment, I uh, I was coming off of a you know punishing crush at the ja- Japanese day job, and so after years of habitually overworking, I uh, went straight into habitually underworking, uh, which you know it worked out for the time and might have been the right thing that I needed in my life. Uh, but at various times over the last couple of years, I have uh, unfortunately find my- found myself um, becoming too entranced with the shiny objects on the internet and uh, not spending enough time on my other priorities in life. Uh, so finding the balance there uh, can occasionally be challenging. Um, kind of, you have to be willing to impose discipline on yourself. Uh, there's no there's no alarm that goes off at 5.30 that says, okay, uh, quitting time, go back and do other things. And particularly if your hobbies or external interests often involve the computer, it's very easy to, uh, you know, playing video games and then have video games bleed into, okay, check email. And then it's 3am in the morning, you're still working on work stuff. And, you know, if you had plans the next day, they're shot, blah, blah, blah. Man, the Spider-Man thing comes true all over. With great power comes great responsibility. That sure is true. And then uh, in addition to finding the balance between work and your other priorities in life, figuring out what to work on is highly non-trivial. There's a bunch of interruptive tasks that will come at you uh, simply because you run a business that are you're shielded from as an employee. And when you're exposed to the full brunt of uh, uh, the regulatory state and uh, the mechanics of capitalism, it will really, really suck for a while. Um, so things like, oh, taxes, haha. <laughs> you know, if, if you're in the United States, you filed taxes before, but you've never filed taxes. <laughs> um, self-employed taxes are entirely different than, than you know, just totaling up a, tuple, a couple of W-2s and calling it a day. Uh, it is, you know, I would routinely lose like a week of my life around tax time, uh, just getting the books in order, getting an accountant to review everything, yada, yada. Um, my situation was complicated by the international factors, but um, even the baseline situation for a software company, particularly the first time or two you go through it, is just brutally, brutally difficult relative to anything you've experienced before. And and that often combos with uh, early on, you might not have enough uh, financial uh, backing to just find an accountant and throw money at the problem. 
um, which is something I did later, and then started writing checks the sizes I had never seen of before to accountants and lawyers. <laughs> I remember my rent when I was starting out was uh, about $400 a month, which is currently less than I pay just for uh, U.S. side accounting. Uh, so, yeah, it's that is an adjustment to make. Yeah. By the way, the way numbers creep up on businesses in a way that they don't necessarily creep up in private life is another adjustment to make, um, not specifically related to uh, to time management, but as long as I'm on the topic. Um, oh my goodness, businesses pay a lot of money for everything, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, the revenue side of your ledger is dominated, hopefully, uh, if you're doing B2B businesses, by the fact that businesses will pay a stupefying amount of money for everything. So um, you can get away with charging 50 or $200 a month for software that you don't subjectively feel is worth 50 or $200 a month, uh, which is good. Uh, the less good side of things is that um, you know accountants who practice in B2B will, will happily charge you what services are worth to other businesses. That services are worth a lot of money uh, if they keep the business productive for a week. So you will you know get bills denominated in thousands. Um, and that can be a little a little painful when you're used to getting your taxes done at H&R Block for, you know, 200 bucks. You mentioned something interesting which is that you you can raise prices on so in, uh, if you're if you have a B2B business, you can or if you're selling to businesses, I should say, um, you can raise prices and um, the, the businesses are are if you're solving a problem for a business, they're often willing to pay a lot of money and um, you know, for, for me, this has been an interesting problem. I mean, I, it's not a, or not, I shouldn't say problem, but it's been interesting because over time, uh, like my podcast ads, like the podcast has gotten slightly more popular. It's a little easier to sell ads to companies that want to reach engineers. And yet I, it costs me no additional marginal work to produce those ads than it did six months ago when I had a much smaller audience but I am obligated to raise the prices because the audience is bigger and there's more demand. And it's hard for me, like there's no there's no intuitive uh, way to figure out how to, how to raise the prices because it's not like, oh, you know, we need to we need to buy more steel to produce more cars. Uh, so how did you, I mean, how did you uh, figure out pricing on your on your software products? Because I mean, you had, Bingo Card Creator, which was a uh, well differentiated product. This uh, appointment, the appointment reminder app, sounds like a well differentiated product. I don't know if I would necessarily describe either of them as well differentiated, given that there were other ways to do the things that they built, but um, uh, the things that they provided for customers. Um, my lodestar for pricing is just to charge more. Uh, I think that the vast majority of engineers in our community um, undervalue the superpower that we have, which is you know, being able to build systems that do things um, basically ex nihilo, which very few of our customers could accomplish for themselves, or very few of our customers could accomplish for um, at anything close to the price that we can provide to them. Um, because, you know, custom software development costs what it costs, and it costs a stupefying amount of money. And we can amortize the cost of that custom software development or custom IP development, whatever it is that you make, uh, over many, many customers and therefore get the cost down to something which is um, basically below the care floor for a business. Um, the care floor for the business, by the way, uh, it goes, um, it's different for different things in different places, but generally. Care, care floor? Yep. 
there's there's a floor below the price I do not care <laughs> uh, and um, like if you're working at you know a larger company and any expense that you need for business purposes goes on your purchasing card p card then your care your care floor is basically you know the max you can put on a p card without having to get your boss's approval in advance ah. or to circulate something to finance and so you know at a lot of companies that's 500 bucks so the difference between you know, paying ninety nine a month and one fifty a month and two forty nine a month. Nothing. It's not your money. It's business's money. If you need it, you need it. Boom. Swipe the card. Um, and you know, I didn't have a P card uh, when running my own businesses, but uh, over the years, I I got to a point where it was like, okay, uh, you know, I the business makes money. I'm not enthusiastic about spending a huge amount of my time uh, doing you know the little things that I could be doing in my application that uh, there is a SaaS business that just cleanly slots into these days. So my care floor was probably like 50 bucks, anything below 50 bucks. I would sign up without thinking about it. I had a interesting collection of little 50, 50 buck a month SaaS businesses today. I was probably spending about, um, you know, somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars a month on, uh, but made sense in the context of the business. So we kept doing that. So these are like things that automate, little pieces of your workflow or or save you time in some other way right um things that you know i just didn't want to have to figure out uh doing myself like uh, uh everything from exception monitoring to uh you know uptime monitoring to what is the oddest thing that i spent on for appointment provider um uh, at one point i was paying for a zapier account which is 50 bucks a month for business uh to do exactly one thing in appointment reminder. And it turned out that one thing was less than one hour of programming work, but <laughs> um, it was not even worth my time investigating how much time it would take to do that one thing. When, you know, it's like, okay, I know that if I do this on Zapier, I'm done in two minutes. Absolutely. I'm just going to do that and go back to, uh, you know, go back to making money for the business. Absolutely. I'm sure you could estimate the expected value of that investigation and it was probably uh you know i'm sure you were well whatever let's not go there um so there is this other post that you wrote called don't call yourself a programmer and other career advice and we've been talking about some various you know well you mentioned earlier on kind of the you know you get kind of tracked in a certain way to do this, you know, you're, you're, you're told what to do in school, you're told what to do in college, you're told what to do in your early programming job, and sometimes you just spend your entire life doing that. But what are the other realities of being a programmer that they don't teach you in college? Whew, things not taught in college is a very large set. Um, so my general advice for people in their careers, uh, and, you know, um, I generally want people to be happy. So whatever happy is for you, uh, I'm largely happy if you find that and just want to make you instrumentally more effective at finding it. Um, I don't think most people will be tremendously fulfilled by just being a cog in the machine. And unfortunately, the machine wants you to be a cog um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist, but uh, capitalism has some, has some expectations about what it wants from workers and... Uh, uh, I don't think that you necessarily want to accept those expectations uncritically. Um, the the kind of default path for most things in life um, will not work out maximally to your advantage. Uh, if you default to identifying yourself as a programmer, you're uh, you're not in a terrible position right now. But um, you know, 
the market goes up, the market goes down, there will eventually become a time where um, certain parts of programming get commoditized. Uh, and I think, you know, the industry is actively hopes and works towards commoditizing certain forms of programming labor. And you don't want to be uh, someone doing a form of labor which is commoditizable. Uh, as can be can be seen by, you know, looking around the uh, uh, the world right now. It's, um, uh, it's convenient that much of what we do is uh, is difficult to, you know, automate, outsource, or eliminate. But uh, uh, there's definitely some folks who had programmer on their business card at one point that are uh, having a little bit of difficulty over the last couple of years. As, you know, technology marches on, their particular talents are uh, less required or uh, they become less aligned with uh, with where the industry is. Um, the, the thing that I would suggest people cast themselves as is less being a programmer or a programmer who is skilled in one stack, just kind of like, you know, I'm a woodworker who's very good with hammers and more uh, casting yourself as someone who can create business value via use of a bag of tricks and having programming or programming in your languages or stacks of choice as some of the tricks in your bag of tricks. And ideally you get to the point where you're not competing with every uh, programmer in the world you're not a you know lumpen source of programming labor that can be slotted in uh, to you know any machine that needs a cog, but rather you're a specialist at one thing that you do well, um, ideally better than almost anyone else who's identifiable for that one thing. Uh, the the thing which I kind of fell backwards into casting myself as was I was the programmer who got marketing and sales, um, which they're. Uh, one person at Stripe described it as I was growth hacking before growth hacking was cool. Um, I don't don't necessarily identify as a growth hacker, but whatever, run with it. Um, you know, it is a true fact that I've created created Ruby slash Rails programs that impacted marketing outcomes, and um, uh, that doesn't require like I'm definitely not the the strongest programmer in the room um, at virtually any company I've ever worked at. Uh, well, okay, I guess when I was self-employed, I was technically speaking the strongest program yeah. in the room. But right. um, that aside, uh, you know, I'd be probably on the bubble of even hireable at Stripe just for my programming talents. Um, I was certainly not the strongest programmer on the Starfighter team, my last company. Uh, but um, I know more than enough to be dangerous, and uh, I have enough knowledge of marketing and sales such that, uh, you know, I know where the levers are and can apply it. Uh, considered amounts of Ruby code to moving those levers in interesting fashions. And that's part of the, um, that's part of the value proposition that got me hired at the current job, although probably not the entirety of the value proposition. Uh, the, um, other thing that I, that I worked on, um, without much intentionality at the start, but which, uh, had more intentionality behind it as I found out that it was working pretty well was, um, uh, getting my work out there into the world. I think, like in the form of blogging? In the form of blogging, in the form of speaking, in the form of running a podcast, um, producing artifacts that other people could consume that were not necessarily my primary work output, but which demonstrated that I was, in fact, capable of producing primary work output. You know, the, the machine wants you to be a cog, and you have cogs be totally interchangeable with each other. And uh, the machine likes buying its cogs from LinkedIn, where the machine can do a search on, you know, give me Java programmers. Okay, here's a list of a thousand. Hit them all with an email and then give them all the standard offer. Um, and you don't want to sell yourself in that fashion. You want to be the uh, the folks, uh, the, the folks. You want to be the folks. Sorry, English is not my first language anymore. Um, <laughs> you want to be the folks. <laughs> you, you want 
you want to be, you know, if someone thinks, okay, uh, I've got this, I've got this marketing programmer shaped hole in my company who fits that hole. And you want to be the only person they think of. Right. Um, and, and to be a person they think of rather than, okay, let me, let me bang, uh, bang some queries into LinkedIn and have my outsourced uh, headhunter uh, hit up a hundred people with spammy email messages. I did uh, a couple shows about this very topic. The, the title of the episode was called You Are Not a Commodity because, I mean, I I felt when I was working in the industry that I, the, the pressure was on me to make myself commodified and, uh, you know, it kind of creates lock-in into the industry where you are a commodity, where eventually you can become deprecated. But, um, you know, you want to be... You don't want to be a commodity, like you sh- and 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 it's less efficient for. Ironically, it's less efficient for capitalism if you make yourself a commodity because you know then you're less of a scarce resource. Um, so, what are some of the ways where uh, blogging and uh, outreach and speaking and stuff helped you and and in, in perhaps unexpected ways? I think that probably most of the big quote unquote big breaks that happened in my career were a sat downstream of uh, publicly visible activities, um, which is funny because you know, that's maybe 20% of my output and 80% was just grinding it out in the uh, in the confines of the code cave. But um, uh, let's see. So one underappreciated method for getting yourself out there is just commenting on Hacker News. Um, I've done a little bit of that, as people who have read Hacker News over the years might have seen. Uh, it's my understated way of saying I'm number two on the leaderboard there. Um, far before I was that visible there, I had just made some friends from the internet. One of them was Thomas Tachek. And uh, before quitting my day job, I arranged to have uh, a coffee with him over Christmas, and he introduced me to the, the wild world of consulting and uh, uh, told me that my skill set would have been fantastically valuable as a consultant, which is... Uh, market moving information that I did not at the time possess. Uh, and that was something I gained just as a result of making a buddy from the internet. Um, that changed the course of my next year. I started actively consulting, and that was a major way that I put food on the table while uh, building a point reminder up to the point where it was sustainable. Subsequently founded a business with Thomas. Uh, so uh, definitely if he invites you out to coffee, take him up on that. Uh, but more generally, you know, uh, what's the title of the book? Make friends and influence people. Um, making friends is an excellent thing to get into the habit of probably pound for pound nothing i've ever done is as useful as uh, putting the standing invitation on my website uh, standing invitation is just uh, you can feel free to email me for any reason if you're in the industry and i will try to write you back um, uh, i meet lots and lots of people through that and many of them turn into uh, opportunities down the road and uh, it's um, a lot of serendipitous things have happened as a result of that and one thing that a friend told me, which is not something I would have credited as likely to be true, was that uh, I was living in the boonies in Ogaki, a town that I really loved, but which is in central Japan without a tech industry to speak of. And he said, you should move to Tokyo because moving to Tokyo will be a serendipity engine for you. You will find yourself meeting people um, who you would not otherwise meet on a regular basis, and uh, that will be awesome for your career. I said, well, Jay, I love living in Ogaki. I'm going to keep living in Ogaki. But for unrelated reasons, I did eventually end up moving to Tokyo. And um, he was entirely accurate. Um, Meeting many more people 
uh, got me more opportunities, got me better opportunities uh, than I would have had uh, otherwise. Um, yeah. So maybe. the so the general lesson there is to find ways to inject spontaneity into your life. What do they say in the military? Target rich environment. Um, find a way for your local environment, whatever the word local means for you, to be a target rich environment with high density for folks in the industry. Um, that could mean moving out to SFBA. Although there's a uh, there's a reason not to move out to SFBA, and that reason is that you will have to live in San Francisco Bay Area. Um, much love to all my coworkers who do. I'm happy if you're happy, as as we discussed earlier. But um, I do not think that that life is presently a life that I would enjoy living. Uh, but you know, uh, if you can't be physically present in an area that has a high density, then try to be at least virtually present. You know, on Hacker News or wherever your industry hangs out. Um, follow the right people on Twitter, et cetera, uh, which sounds perilously close to social media marketing, which is definitely <laughs> not useful. But, you know, in general, um, again, get out there and make friends. If if you do not meet people in the day-to-day at the Code Cave, go out to meetups. Find out what other people are working on. Show genuine interest in, in their problems. Keep up with them over the years. Um, it is uh, amazing how many people don't credit their career as being something that will stretch for 40 years. But your career is going to stretch for 40 years, and the industry is a shockingly, shockingly small place. Um, there are people who I knew, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now, and saying that makes me feel old. But people who were um, literally in middle school when I started are now decision makers at tech companies. And emails that I happen to respond from respond to from folks who were in high school at the time are, you know, same email addresses now attached to check randing authority for multi-million dollar things, uh, which happens to be a, uh, you know, it is a, a useful fact that I have social permission to email them. We'll put it yeah. that way. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And and I think, you know, it, it, what you say about the long term of the career, um, I, you know, I definitely look at this and I'm like, there's so many opportunities to make really, really easy investments in your uh, career capital or networking or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's like, look, certain aspects of life are somewhat transactional and if you can find a way to do a favor for somebody no matter how small that favor is um chances are it's going to com- come back to you in compounded form uh over time in 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 a in a way that has compounded much more aggressively than if you would have spent that time instead of responding to that email like buying a stock or something so it's, it's like so much more valuable to invest in relationships and um, and knowledge and um, and yeah, like you do with public outreach, um, than than some sort of like fixed financial upside type of thing. When you think of like the net present value of your career versus the net present value of your portfolio for people who are in a, a situation similar to ours, I don't know. You can do Excel modeling if you actually care about the actual numbers. <laughs> but let me just assert that the net present value of your career is several million dollars. And for the majority of people listening to this podcast, you probably don't have several million dollars sitting in your IRA. And therefore, figuring out what you can do to make your career 1% better is probably a higher level consideration than figuring out how you can, you know, increase the returns of your portfolio by 1%. And I think structuring structuring your affairs such that uh, you repeatedly generate little opportunities for yourself and then take them without thinking uh, is a probably better way to uh, do it than... Uh, having to make a like go or no go decision on you know every email or favor or et cetera that you get pulled into yeah um, 
one of the models that I'm not sure is accurate, but I think is useful is that uh, if you model yourself as having a finite number of decisions per day, using using your like scarce allocation of decision points on uh, on little things just exhaust you for making the the big uh, business moving decisions that you have to make about you know marketing strategy, sales strategy, what do I need to work on today, etc. So uh, being able to like create systems that you know after you've got a blog running it keeps running whether you put more stuff on it or not after you have people coming to you asking questions um, if you've pre-committed to just answering questions when they come in then you know the the 230 email that comes in does not require the 203rd decision to answer the question and therefore you don't have that little bit of decision fatigue uh, possibly getting you in the way of um, giving someone a great first experience on using you and uh, uh, having them you know, consider you for things in the future. Um, I will, uh, I'll mention because it's public knowledge because he tweeted about it. Uh, there was this, uh, there's this, uh, Irish kid down in Buenos Aires who was, uh, making this, uh, crazy software startup who wrote me for advice back in the day. Um, and, uh, the company was called Dev Payments at the time. Uh, it's now called Stripe. Um, it was apparently the, one of the first people that uh, the other Patrick uh, thought to write about that, which was a major feather in my cap. Sadly, that email went into spam filter um, to the great loss of both of us, I think. But uh, <laughs> uh, like the um, uh, the fact that I was well known as somebody who would be happy to get an email like that is probably why he, he took the chance at reaching out to me. And the fact that I was someone who uh, was sufficiently credible as a result of having written on the internet uh, is probably causationally related with me having uh, the current job, which uh, I enjoy quite a lot. And and so for, for anyone listening, uh, if you are in Buenos Aires and you are working on a small payments startup and you are looking for a small investment, you can also email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. <laughs> um, but seriously, though, uh, please feel free to email me anytime if there's something I can help you with at the... Uh, this is far and away the most fulfilling part of my career is being able to help other people out with their businesses. So Patrick at Kalzumius, K-A-L-Z-U-M-E-U-S dot com or um, Patrick at is not my email address at Stripe. Don't email that one. Uh, well, you <laughs> might email that one. That's public information too. But um, okay. uh, I, I, probably the easiest one to spell is patio11, which is my handle everywhere at Stripe. Also gets my inbox if you have any Stripe related questions to ask. Can we talk a little bit more about Stripe? Because I, I wanted to know what it's like to work there. Because my my impression is that it has a very unique culture. And I, by the way, I haven't done any shows on Stripe. I should do. I uh, should hopefully somebody maybe if somebody from Stripe is listening. They want to come on the show. Um, but Stripe has a really unique culture. As uh, I mean, I'm sure is obvious to anyone listening. You're you are working remotely from Japan and you are working for a company that's based in the Bay Area. So maybe you could talk a little bit about like the culture of Stripe and what was so appealing about the culture that you would leave the small... I mean, it's many people's goal to build a small business and run it and then just be independent, but you were willing to abandon that to go work at a company. So I'm just curious what the culture that was so appealing to you was. I think it's a combination of uh, where I was exactly in my life and... Uh, uh, what Stripe was offering generally in terms of the company and specifically in terms of the position. Um, that said, the things that attracted me most to Stripe were uh, the combination of, uh, I guess, impact and ownership is how I would describe it. The uh, the last couple of years have been you know, running 
a succession of tiny software businesses on the internet and uh, uh, then you know doing my uh, kind of extracurricular hobbies and blogging speaking etc and I was very very f- fulfilled by my extracurricular hobbies and felt like I was making an impact um, the you know I've got a, a folder in Gmail of um, or I guess a filter or whatever uh, a collection of messages in some UX that I don't fully understand because I hate email um, but and so I've got a collection of messages from folks who uh, I have helped with uh, getting raises over the years as a as a uh, consequence of writing a few articles on salary negotiation for engineers. And um, the the like aggregate you know amount of additional dollars per year secured for engineers um, reaches into the uh, mid single digit millions at the moment. Um, and so. Like, was making a huge impact on that and didn't feel like I was making a huge impact on the world just by shipping bingo cards or just by shipping appointment reminding software. Um, my customers were better off for having it, but you know, I felt like there's something bigger I can be doing. And I'm getting to a point in my career where, you know, uh, if every minute that I spend on my business is trading off with a minute I could be spending on my daughter, then I want to be able to go back to my daughter at the end of the day and say, hey, Lily and Daddy did something that really mattered today. And uh, when I got to pitch for Atlas um, about the ability to influence entrepreneurs worldwide and hopefully make entrepreneurship as a class of activity more successful worldwide, um, that felt like a worthy thing to spend the next couple of years of my life doing um, in a way that, you know, my, uh, my other thing that I would probably have tried to do is, okay, let's make another s- small software business and see where it goes. And um, I think the uh, kind of using Stripe as a platform to... Uh, amplify my own personal impact was uh, something that really attracted me to the option. Uh, I also like that. Uh, uh, so Stripe has a combination of work and Stripe. You have the combination of um, being backed by coworkers, which is a a nice change of pace. Um, I had coworkers at Starfighter, uh, so I was not doing absolutely everything myself. But um, the majority of the last ten years of my experience has been uh, being. Uh, primarily responsible for getting most of the, you know, if something happened, I had to make it happen. And it's nice to be surrounded by people who are constantly making things happen uh, so that, you know, like payroll is sorted, uh, making sure the rent gets paid is sorted. Uh, you know, the there's many other product initiatives coming uh, happening in the company at all times and great progress is being made on them at all times. So I can feel free to uh, focus a little bit on the unique value I bring into the company. Where at the same time, uh, they give me a little bit of uh, leeway in exercising my business ADHD. And I, uh, I definitely get a little bit of shiny object syndrome and feel like I can contribute in a lot of ways. That's one of my challenges with Tripe is figuring out like where I could contribute, probably shouldn't. But in places that I could contribute and uh, probably should, like say, you know, I happen to know SaaS businesses pretty well. And Stripe works with SaaS businesses. Um, one of the things I ended up doing my first couple of weeks at the company was taking a look at our subscription strategy and, uh, you know, assisting them in creating a a new version of the strategy uh, informed by the uh, deep experience with the day to day reality of running SaaS businesses. And knock on wood, hopefully that was uh, well, it was enormously fulfilling for me to have people listen to my crazy ranting on the subject. But uh, hopefully that was useful for them and. Uh, over the course of the next couple of months will be useful to all the uh, the subscriptions businesses that are running on top of Stripe. The way the company kind of like lets you float between what is your quote-unquote uh, 
your job and uh, the projects you want to work on is kind of nice. Um, particularly at a company this size, it's uh, less of a matter of you know figuring out internal politics and how to get assigned to blah blah blah, and more of just showing up to contribute on blah blah blah. And if you want that to be your primary concentration, you just continue doing that until someone says, "Hey, let's make this official." Um, but uh, you know, there's it sounds like the Valve model that gaming company. They have a model where basically, like, if you want to work on a project, you just roll up a chair and like kind of start working on it, and then eventually it becomes your like your main thing. Yeah, I don't know how much um, Stripe would subscribe to like that's exactly how it works, but at least uh-huh. in my personal experience, in my first two months. Um, and there's been a whole lot of, uh, you know, just me approaching a team and saying, Hey, I think I, um, I think I have some thoughts about something you're doing. Do you want to get coffee for a little bit, get coffee for a little bit, uh, hear a bit about the context and say, okay, that's awesome. Um, here's some concrete ways that I think I could help you out on this. Uh, is that something that would be interesting to you? And, uh, people have been uh, very receptive to it. Um, obviously you want to be careful of, you know, uh, we have, impressive amounts of internal visibility into everything and uh, uh, impressive amounts of, you know, I could commit bit to the model repo. Um, so theoretically speaking, I could, uh, you know, land a PR, which uh, ripped out all of our transaction processing for Amex tomorrow uh, and say, hey, this is the new way to do Amex. Um, I don't think that would endear me to a lot of the people who have spent the last couple of years uh, making sure that, you know, we don't burn gazillions of dollars. Um, so there's definitely a balance to be struck, but uh, I, um, I'm kind of optimistic about uh, where we strike that balance and you know how we, how we grow with that going forward. Um, the company is going through massive growth. Um, man, I would I would be terrible at my job if I didn't say this. We're totally hiring. If you know, if uh, uh, running a side business is something you want to do and you're happy doing it, that awesome. But if you're looking for a job to give you you know the creative fulfillment and uh, uh, ability to work with smart people doing hard technical stuff every day. Um, Stripe is hiring. Uh, go to our jobs page at stripe.com slash jobs or send me an email, patio11 at stripe.com. That's the end of my plug. Um, okay. End of your plug. Uh, I'll plug one more thing for you, the Calzumius podcast, which is a, a podcast that I found pretty entertaining. You you had an episode recently where you talked about the sale of your business, like the actual process of going through the sale using a business broker which allows you to which uh, basically a, uh, a company that helps you find a buyer for your small business you found buyers for both that appointment reminder app and the bingo card creator i didn't know this type of business broker existed but if people want to know more about that they should listen to the recent episode of your podcast and there's actually okay so there's one question one more totally different question that i wanted to ask you before because um, we're running up against time but um there was a post that you had on your blog where you mentioned just it was a subtle aside that you had some criticism of, of Bitcoin, and I'm just very oh, curious goodness. about what, what. I hope I'm not opening like a giant can of worms here, but what are your criticisms of Bitcoin? So unfortunately, uh, we are running up a bit against time, and I don't know if I can do my criticism criticisms of Bitcoin <laughs> okay. justice in any finite amount of time. And um, Bitcoin is like a fractal. You zoom in on any part of it, and there's like an infinite variety and depth of terrible things about it. And you zoom in on any part portion of the terrible things, and there's even like fractal amounts of terrible things included in that one little terrible thing. And then you zoom in on any part of those terrible things, and it's just like a never-ending spiral of terrible. Um, so with with that little dodge out of the way, um, 
we'll we'll kick this to some other time. Okay. Well, well, that sounds like a great place to close off. Thanks, Patrick, um, for your abbreviated criticism, and thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm I'm a fan of your blog, Calizumius.com. People should check it out. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks very much for talking to me, Jeff. Um, again, if I can ever help any of you out for any reason, uh, Patrick at Calizumius.com, uh, or if it's a Stripe-related thing, patio 11 at Stripe.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.